Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. But when it comes to lists, you have to be consistent. When it comes to mail uh, marketing, forget mail, like marketing, you have to be consistent. That is the secret sauce. Most people don't have the nerve to stand there and, and let it go for three or four or five or six months and see the results. Most people get nervous and they start getting doubts and second thoughts after like a month or maybe two, and then they stop it. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. Guys, if you haven't given me a rating and review yet, what are you waiting for? Go do it. I really, really would appreciate it. So do me a huge favor and go do that. If you need help in your business, if you don't know what you don't know, you're struggling, you just don't know how to grow, you don't know how to scale, you don't know how to start, go and check out Find and Fund Blueprint. That's my course, Find and Fund Blueprint. I'm here for you. I want to help you, but I can't if you don't reach out and let me know that you need that help. Go to Find and Fund Blueprint. Sign up. I want to see you inside of that course. I want to help you grow or start your business. All right, guys. I'm on today's uh, Q&A, this is a replay from the Q&A we do on Facebook every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. We have a good one for you. We talked about different types of financing, hard money, private money, institutional, um, you know, traditional loans. We talked about working with realtors, uh, finding a mentor. We talked about long-term rentals versus short-term rentals. Short-term rentals are really hot right now, but are they really better than long-term uh, or or long-term better? So, uh, or, or what's right for you, really? Not necessarily which one's better, but which one's, what's the difference and which one is right for you? So that's what we talk about on today's show. It was awesome. It was a blast. I know you're going to love this one, guys. So get ready. I give you my Wednesday Q&A replay. Okay, guys, we are live and I want to welcome you back. I appreciate you being here. Uh, it is awesome to have you and it's fun to do these every week. And let me just turn my volume on my computer down so I don't have any troubles there. All right. Good deal. Hopefully you guys are logging in and... Uh, and you're ready to go with questions because I'm ready to talk to you guys. Again, we do this every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific. And I love having you guys here. I love the questions. I get them throughout the week and we bring them here for you guys to uh, sort of, you know, be a fly on the wall. Listen to what people are asking and they may be asking questions that you didn't think to ask, frankly, or you just don't have that information to even be able to formulate that question. Uh, so being just a fly on the wall is good too, just hearing what people are asking. But if you have questions of your own, uh, uh, you need to log on live so that we can have that interaction. Sometimes when people ask me questions on email or in a DM and I answer them here for you live, I don't have the ability to ask follow-up questions when I read the question. And sometimes follow-up questions can help me really dive deeper and drill down into the actual situation that you're finding yourself in. So if you have questions, you're always going to be better off to ask them live here. 
Uh, but if you send them to me, I will answer them here and I will answer them to the best of my ability, given the information that you gave me. Um, so just uh, drop your questions down in the comments here and I will get them answered. Uh, also, guys, if you want help in your business, if you need help in your business, if uh, you are struggling to either launch and get started with your real estate investing business, or maybe you've just hit a point where you're not sure what to do. You don't know how to grow anymore. You don't know how to be more profitable. You're not sure what you're doing wrong, or maybe you're not doing anything wrong, but you're just not sure how to go to the next level. I can help you with that. I want to help you with that. I have helped hundreds and hundreds of real estate investors do exactly that. And I've done it myself in my own business. So uh, I think I'm very qualified to help you with that, but you just have to reach out. And by doing, by reaching out, I mean, go to findandfundblueprint.com. That's findandfundblueprint.com. That is where you can sign up for my course. And I will help you get your business going either off the ground or to the next level and help you scale and all that kind of stuff or help you build that foundation to actually get off the ground and be profitable and uh, build something that can get you hopefully out of your business if that's your goal, right? It's not everybody's goal, but if it's yours, let's get it done. Let's get you out of there. I spent tons and tons and years and years and years in, in the industry that I didn't love and I wasn't happy with, didn't love my job, didn't love my career. And getting out of that was the best thing I ever did. I say it all the time, the worst day that I have as an entrepreneur is way better than the best day I had working for somebody else. So if that's your goal, I hear you and I'm behind you and I want to help you. Okay, let's dive into today's questions. Uh, let's see. Uh, first one, can you explain the difference between different types of financing, uh, like hard money, private money, um, institutional financing? Yeah. So in, in general, now I'm, I'm talking strictly uh, real estate. Um, and, and really, I'm kind of talking about single family homes right now, right? I'm not a big multifamily guy. So I, I don't want to go down that road uh, and give you too much advice on financing for multifamily. But when it comes to single family, there are really three categories of financing that you can, that you can get. Private money, hard money, and then what I call institutional financing, like banks and credit unions and mortgage companies and, and that kind of thing. Um, Here's the difference. A bank or a mortgage company, most of us are familiar with them. They're going to finance for the most part. They're going to finance the purchase price. And like for an FHA loan, for example, you may have to come up with 3% of the down payment. Um, for more of a conventional financing, uh, institutional financing, they may want more like 10 to 20%. So you're going to put some money down, but then they'll finance the purchase, but then you're going to have to finance the rehab. Okay. So institutional traditional financing was set up for homeowners buying properties off the MLS that are already in good shape and they don't need a lot of work. And so they're just buying a house and they put some money down and then they own the house and, they, and they're good. Right. That's what, that's what traditional institutional financing is set up for. Now, the other two types, hard money and private money, are much more friendly and conducive to real estate investing. The difference between the two is hard money is not based off of relationships and personal relationships or personal interaction. It's much more of a business-to-business -business type of a transaction. Uh, there's, it's usually fairly high interest rate, anywhere between you know, 12 and 15% for hard money is pretty, pretty common. Um, if a hard money lender advertises less than 10% for their rate for like a fix and flip loan, for example, 
you might want to start looking into their other fees and points and, and, you know, origination costs and loan costs and application costs and all these things, you add them up, they usually end up being at least 12 to 15%. So, but you can get hard money with relatively short notice without having any relationships and all that. Like you can just find a deal, get it under contract, call the hard money lender, send them the information on that deal, and they'll tell you if they'll finance it pretty quickly. And, and that's a really easy way to go. It costs a lot, but it's easy and it's sort of quick and, and you don't need to prep anybody or anything. Now, private money is a little different. Private money, you can't always get that whenever you feel like it. You can't just call up some, some high net worth individual and say, I need $250,000 in a week, right? It's not the way it works. They're going to say, first of all, who are you? Why are you calling me? How did you get my number, right? Like you have to have relationships with private money lenders. You have to, they have to get to know you. And I've said this before, I've, I've said it a million times because it's absolutely true. Private money lending is a relationship uh, business. And people will lend money to people they don't lend money to businesses. So if you have a really well-run business and a track record of success, and you know you can show all these numbers of things that you've done and money you've made, your other investors, that's fine. And it's a component and it certainly isn't bad to have. But in my experience, that is not what's going to get you uh, a loan with a private money investor. What's going to get you that loan is that they believe you, they trust you, they believe that you will give them their money back with the interest or whatever it is that you, whatever terms you've agreed on, that you will actually perform. A spreadsheet does not make anybody outside of a hardcore engineer feel any better about anything. And so most of the hard or most of the private money that I've raised in my lifetime or in my career as a real estate investor, it has not had a lot of accompanying documents. There hasn't been just tons and tons of documentations and you know proof of this and proof of that. Most of the hard money I've gotten, it's been because people got to know me and they liked me and they trusted me and they lent me money. Matter of fact, the first two private money investors that I ever worked with um, didn't even require paperwork, which is an absolute terrible thing. And I shouldn't have accepted money without paperwork. They certainly should have never given me money without paperwork. And I'm not, ad, I'm not advocating that you shouldn't use paperwork. What I'm saying is it's so much a relationship business that the paperwork is a formality, right? It should be a formality. It's such something we all do to protect ourselves and be very diligent and good business people. But they've already decided that they're going to lend you money before you signed any paperwork, right? They, they like you. They trust you. They believe you'll do what you say you're going to do. That's private money. Now, the other thing about private money is where hard money, you know, a lot of times 12 to 15% is what you can expect to pay in terms of like rate of return. Private money is different. Private money is whatever you work out with the person who has the money. And a lot of times those folks are have their money in the stock market or in, or in like money market account or mutual fund or 401ks. And, and sometimes they're making pretty good returns. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes, you know, they're making returns of three or 4% and you ask them if they'd like to double that rate of return and they're ecstatic. And they say, of course, I'd love to double it to go from three to six to six. Yeah. Be awesome. Right. So hard money lending can be gotten or, or I'm sorry, private money, money, private money can be gotten for way, way less than what a hard money lender might charge you. 
Now, it's not always the case. You know, if you have a, a, a private money relationship and, you know, you need money the next day and they have to scramble, it might cost you a little bit more. But in general, done right, private money will be a much, much better form of funding than anything else. Better terms, better rates. You know, a, a lot of times I've never had a um, private money loan where I paid monthly payments. Private money I've gotten in the past, it's always been I it, the, the interest accrues and I just pay it when I sell the house, right? So for cash flow purposes, that can be really, really attractive, right? So the goal, the end goal is private money. If you have to, you can use institutional financing. You can go get a loan from a mortgage company or a credit union or a bank or whatever. And that's fine. If that's what it takes to get the job done and you finance the renovation yourself, by all means, that's what I did my first deal. Exactly what I did. I got a loan through a mortgage company and, and I, I put my own money for the rehab. And that's what you do if you have to do it. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is find private money, raise a ton of it, get the best terms possible, and then go out there and make, make money. And then frankly, once you have private money and you're doing well and you have pretty good terms, pretty good rates, you should always be raising private money. Why? Not because necessarily you need more money, but because you always should be trying to get better rates. Because at the end of the day, if your volume in terms of like the number of deals you're doing doesn't change and nothing changes on that end, right? You, you can't get past a certain amount for whatever reason. Let's say you do 50 flips and you just seem to always be around that 50 flip mark. One year you do 50, next year you do 47, the next year you do 51 and then 48 and 52 and 50. Like if you just kind of always at that number, and, and nothing else really changes dramatically, getting better terms and rates on your funding can make you more profitable all by itself without you doing anything differently in your business. Just getting better rates can make you more profitable. So always try to get better rates. Always try to find better funding. That's 100% what you should be doing. Okay, that was a long answer to a really short question. Next question, my buddy, Adam Whitney is on with us again. Adam's a total rock star. Uh, I, I was hanging out with him all last week at Flip Hacking Live. Uh, he gave a great, great, great presentation on stage. He's an awesome, awesome investor. So Adam, what do you got to say, my friend? Do you know any wholesalers who aren't agents who have been successful monetizing retail leads? If so, how? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in my business, it, it was sort of a struggle on and off to get that done. Um, the short answer to your question is, I I have been successful monetizing, monetizing leads. I know other people who have been successful, but it's a really, really small revenue stream. So it's not huge money. So what we do, and this is very common, I hear of a lot of people doing this, is they take those, those dead leads, those retail leads, whatever it is, for whatever reason that you're going to kind of be done with it, you turn it over to an agent and we get 25% of their commission. So, uh, it, you know, if they get a $10,000 commission on a deal, we get 2,500 bucks. Now the key is number one, it's not, it's not high. It's usually not like big, big revenue. It's not like going to be some major revenue stream, but it's certainly better than throwing those leads in the garbage. So, uh, what you have to focus on though, it, it, assuming that you're going to get that like 20, I've heard of people getting uh, 30%, 35%, 40% of that, of that re, uh, agent's commission, um, but very common to get 25%. Like that seems like sort of like 
that's that's the baseline. Like that's what you should expect if nothing else. And so the real question though is, is finding or the real real challenge is finding a realtor that will take those leads and treat them professionally or has a professional operation where they have a CRM and they're going out and they're doing the first initial contact. They're going out and visiting the people. If they, for some reason, don't get that, that um, contract with that seller that they're following up with them, putting them in a database and doing some regular follow-up and then having some sort of a, a feedback loop to you. So you know what's going on with your leads. There's nothing worse than handing a realtor 50 leads in a month and never hearing about them again. Like, I don't care necessarily if they didn't get the contract, if they didn't get that that you know, that that um, representation agreement. But I need to hear what happened. You know, give me the list of what I gave you, and give me some sort of a spreadsheet that says you know listed with somebody else, took it off the market, whatever. Like, tell me what they what happened to it. I, I don't I don't want to have um, radio silence when I hand you a bunch of free leads. And so the real key and what we've struggled with is finding realtors or brokers who are going to like diligently follow up, stay on top of it, and then give us that feedback loop. Because if I give you 50 leads and I don't hear anything for months, I just assume you did nothing. Like you did nothing, that you're horrible at what you do and you didn't do anything. The reality might be that they followed up and they followed up and followed up and it just didn't um, pan out. But in the absence of information, I assume incompetence. That's, that's just how I feel about it. So we've struggled finding realtors that were giving us that constant feedback. We did, we did end up finding one in our market and we have a pretty good relationship and we do feed them leads. Um, so, and it's, it's a, it's a check that it's like mailbox money, right? It's a check that comes in the mail or a wire that we get or whatever, every so often, not a ton of money, but you know, helps pay for the marketing kind of a thing. But yeah, it, you know, it's, you don't make as much when you're not an agent for sure. Cause you have an agent on your team you know, now they're taking down a lot more money for the company. Um, so that that's, you know, it, it's just a small revenue stream. If you're not an agent, it's just small usually. So, and a lot of the leads we get, we know, um, you know, are just, are just bad. They're just people who aren't really that interested. They're more kicking tires or, you know, they want to know how you got their information, things like that. Uh, but if it's a true retail lead and they have true motivation, but for whatever reason, they can't sell because they maybe just owe too much or they don't want to do some sort of creative financing thing, then an agent could be a really good option for them. But a lot of times, what what is the reality? And I tell people all, all the time, and we can't be like talking out of two sides of our mouth as investors. I tell people all the time, and, and Adam, I'm sure you've heard this from people and you probably tell people the same thing. When someone calls me as a wholesaler, calls my company, and they say, can you come out? I need your help. I need to sell my house. And we come out there. One of the first things we tend to do, and it's sort of a sales tactic, but it's also like just trying to uncover what's happening. We'll often ask them, why did they didn't sell through, through the MLS, through a realtor? Why not just bring a realtor in and put this thing on the MLS, get retail pricing. You're going you're gonna to get more than I could give you. And then they give you all the reasons why they can't do it. And so a lot of times those leads are not going to be good for a realtor because they can't use a realtor for whatever reason. Now, the people who call and they say, how much will you give me? And I, we give them a, a range sometimes. And then they spit out some retail price and say they really want to sell, but they, they're not selling for less than this. We may work on them for a while, but ultimately that becomes a realtor lead. And then, you know, a small percentage of those actually pan out. Most people who want to sell through a realtor reach out to a realtor proactively. 
and they say, I want to sell my house. And that's, that's, those leads are great for realtors. Our leads are not like sometimes as investors, we build them up like, oh my gosh, I gave you all these free leads. That's so awesome of me. The reality is most of the leads we give realtors are not going to be great for them. These are folks who aren't really serious about selling or, um, you know, their house is in crap shape and they just can't come to terms with not getting retail. So we give them to them and then they can't really sell it because the house isn't great. Like our leads are not always great as, as investors, but 25% of their commission, I think is more than fair. And, you know, just find someone who's diligent and actually treats their business like a business. That's the biggest thing. I, I think most realtors, and I, this is maybe not fair and it's a generalization, but I don't care. This is my Q and a, uh, most realtors are unorganized and they don't take their own business very seriously, or they're doing it part-time and they don't have time to put in the work to give us that feedback loop. So I, go with someone who's like established, legit, has a process, has a team, and you know, they at least have a shot of getting you that information and making sure they're staying on top of it. Okay. <clears throat> Teresa Green. Teresa asked, what is the best way to approach a successful investor to work under them and gain more hands-on knowledge? The best way. And I've, I've, had, I've had more people than I can count offer or ask to work for me. And I've pretty much turned all of them down, maybe with the exception of, of one. Uh, but I turned most of them down. And the reason is, is everybody leads with what they want. Can I work for you? I want to learn the industry. I want to see how you run your business. And honestly, if your goal is to like, you know, if you call a wholesaler and you want to work for them and you tell them like on the first contact, like, I want to work for you. I want to see how you do business. And then I want to go do it myself. Like, I'm not going to bring you into my company just to show you what we do and kind of get you up to and running, make it to the point where you're valuable and have some knowledge just for you to leave and be my competitor. Like I'm not afraid of competition. I don't care about that, but I care about you wasting my time and using me. It, it feels like I'm being used at that point. I've actually had people come in for interviews, like full on, like, like indeed um, zip recruiter, like interviews for an hour. And they sit there with a resume and they tell me in that, interview when they're coming to work for me, I'm here to learn as much as I can, soak up as much knowledge as I can, and then I'm going to go out and do the same thing. Like, it, you think, I don't know why anybody thinks that inspires me to hire them or to bring them in. It doesn't. It just makes me go, eh, go figure it out yourself. Like, I'm not going to bring you into my company just to do something, do you a solid. Like, what's the point of that? Um, so the best way to approach them is lead with value really spend time analyzing their business to the best of your ability. Um, get on their radar a little bit, figure out what you have that you can offer to that person or that company. That's a value to them. Find a way to make their life easier or to be a source of revenue for them, right? Something you do that you can do for them that will actually produce income and offer to do it for free. Just don't, don't ask for money. Don't, I mean, if you want to learn, like provide value. So at the end of that agreement, you may leave and do your own thing, but you, you 
provided a significant source of time savings. Maybe you come on and, 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 and build out a system or a process for them that makes their life easier even after you're gone. Like that kind of a person who said, listen, here's my skill set. Here, here's what I have that I'm great at. And here's how I think I can apply it to you and your business to make you more money, to save you time, and to be a huge asset, not only while I'm there, but maybe even while I'm, even after I leave, after I'm gone, like that person, that's, that's the person I would, I would listen to and, and probably let them in my company. But if you say, Hey, I want to work with you. I want to gain the knowledge. Like I'm available, figure out how to use me. You've just created a new project for me. I've got a million things going on. My team is busy. They're hustling. They're trying to you know, knock things out of the park on a daily basis. And then we have this person, right? In theory, this person standing in our office saying, figure out how to use me. It's a job. Like you've just created more work for us. You not only didn't save us time or money, you've, you've created a problem, right? And that sounds harsh, but it's true. I have so much going on. My team has so much going on. They don't have time to teach you the industry unless you can come in and maybe teach us something, maybe provide a service or create a system or a process or, you know, build out some software or just do something that we can go, oh, okay, now this is something. This is saving us time. This is saving us money. This is making us money. Like that's the person. And it's not easy, right? If everyone could do that, then, then it, it would just be easy. But you have to figure out what you have to offer. If it's just time, that's okay. You don't have to be some technology whiz or whatever, have some, some skill set that's an, a mind-blowing and amazing. If all you have is time, that's fine. But figure out how that time can be very attractive to the person who you're trying to learn from. And maybe even to the extent that you do it independent of any, any, any input on their side until you start generating something for them, a time savings, generate revenue. Money is always great, right? If you can, for example, right? This isn't necessarily what I'm telling you to do, but let's just say you have nothing but time. You don't work or whatever it is. And you can go out and drive for dollars, for example, right? Driving for dollars is driving around neighborhoods, looking for houses that are in distress or in some disrepair or look like they're abandoned or whatever, vacant. And you drive around and maybe start driving for dollars, taking down information, skip tracing those things and start generating real leads. Go and get a contract, bring it to the wholesaler and say, hey, I've been driving for dollars for you for a couple of weeks now. And I skip traced all the leads and I went and talked to them and I got a contract. Here you go. Here's a contract. I'm just handing it to you. I would like to work for you. I would like to learn from you. And I think that I can generate revenue. I can be a value to you that way. You bring me a contract in my market. <clears throat> that's, you know, hopefully it's a good contract, but you bring me a contract in my market. I'm totally giving you my time. I'm listening to you. We're going out to lunch, going out for coffee. I want to hear more like from this person who went out and just did something without asking anything from me first or making it a project for me to figure out how to use you. I'll take that person every single day and figure out how I can utilize them and I'll I'll help them learn. Like I'm I'm fine with that. It's a fair exchange. We're we're kind of both helping each other. But don't ever approach an entrepreneur of any kind, wholesale or anybody else and just say, "Hey, uh, I want to learn from you. I want you to take me under your wing. I'm a good learner. Like, show them, show them that you're valuable. Show them that you're a go getter. Show them that you don't need hand holding. You're not going to be a problem for them. You simply want to make their lives better, easier, and more profitable. And that's the best way to do it. And nobody's ever, well, only one person has ever led 
with me led that way when they came to me wanting to learn. And that person is now my business partner, right? Nobody else has done it. So that's what I would do, Teresa. Okay. Uh, Nick asks, can you talk about lists and direct mail if you're ready to commit and be consistent and not just dabble and hope you get a deal off a mailing or two? Okay. Let me read that one more time. Can you talk about lists and direct mail if you are ready to commit and be consistent? Okay. You're kind of answering you know, what I think what you want me to say, but when it comes to lists, you have to be consistent. When it comes to mail, uh, marketing, forget mail, like marketing, you have to be consistent. That is the secret sauce. Most people don't have the nerve to stand there and, and let it go for three or four or five or six months and see the results. Most people get nervous and they start getting doubts and second thoughts after like a month or maybe two, and then they stop it. There was somebody in my market years ago when I started doing direct mail and I was getting deals and building my company, we were starting to grow fast. He said, or I said to him, I'm sorry. I, he said he can't find deals. And I said to him, have you tried direct mail? This is like back in 2016, like when honestly direct mail was a little even easier for it to work. And he said, how are you getting all your deals? And I said, direct mail, have you tried it? And he said, yes, I have. And it didn't work. And I said, okay, I'm thinking in my head, we're in the same market, dude. Like it works. I'm doing it right now. Like I'm getting the deals you're missing because I'm doing, but okay. I, I played along. I said, why, what did you do? Tell me what you did and that it didn't work. And he said, yeah. So I pulled a list. I sent out mail uh, and I didn't get any calls. And I said, okay, what did you do the next month? And he said, nothing. It didn't work. I stopped doing it. And I said, that's why it didn't work because you stopped. And I know for a fact, this person never started doing direct mail. They just sort of shook his head and nodded and whatever and walked away. But the reality is I was doing it then. I'm doing it now. Direct mail works, but you have to be consistent. The kind of list you pull is important, but it's not as important, honestly, as your consistency and your follow through and maybe some attention to detail on the, on the, on the piece itself. And then you know, a lot of times when people aren't getting deals, they're sending out mail and they're not getting deals, they blame the mail or they blame the marketing. There's a whole like upstream of activity that happens with direct mail. The first thing that happens is the mail piece gets designed and sent out. Okay. The next piece is hopefully calls come in. Okay. So that's one thing. Let's just call that one thing. Mail goes out, calls come in. That's, that's step number one. One. I'm holding up two fingers. Number one. Step number two is the phones get answered by somebody, hopefully. Now, if you're telling me, oh, no, no, we don't answer phones. It goes to direct voicemail. That's part of your problem. But somebody answers that thing. So that's step number two. Okay. And then hopefully there's an appointment made and somebody goes out and talks to the seller to try to get the contract. That's step number three. If you're not getting deals, it's not always the marketing. Sometimes it's the person answering the phone is horrible or non-existent, or you're doing voicemail or just nobody's answering. It's just ringing forever. Or maybe that your acquisitions person is not doing a great job. I've seen all those things. I've seen people tell me, oh, my direct mail is bad. It's not working. I need to quit it or change it. And I'll go, well, tell me some of your metrics. Like how much mail are you sending? How many calls are you getting? And I uncover they're getting a, a really good volume of calls. They're getting as many calls as anyone should reasonably expect but the phone person's doing a bad job. And so the sales guy never gets out there. 
So the problem isn't with the males, with the phones. And I've seen it where the males going out, getting good responses. They're getting a lot of appointments, no contracts, right? That's a sales problem. That's not a marketing problem. It's a sales problem. So be aware, be aware of where you're putting blame. Okay. But the question wasn't that the question was, uh, the question was, I think more like what are your, what's your advice on direct mail? So if you have a limited budget, and I'm not going to necessarily define limited because everybody's idea of what limit is different. But if you can't send out several thousand mail pieces a month, I'll just leave it at that. If it's less than several thousand, then I would say niche marketing is probably a better avenue for you than say doing like a high equity list or something. Niche markets are niche, mar niche marketing is good in that case because the lists tend to be smaller. You know, you're not going to pull a list of 100,000 people for niche marketing, generally speaking. It's going to be much smaller lists. Okay, so it takes less money to mail to them. The other thing is they're very timely. Right? Niche lists are very, very time sensitive. If somebody is on a um, code violation list, for example, for the city code violation, that's usually a time frame where they're on that code violation, you know, a couple of weeks to a month. And then they're not on that list because let's just say they had high grass or they had garbage all over the place. Like the city will come and just take care of it and send you a bill. So you don't stay on that list forever. So it's really good. Like it's good, um, quick, like turnaround there. It's a relevant list for a long time. So use niche lists. If you're just going to go, uh, with a, with a lower volume mailing, if you have a lot of money to spend and you really want to have, uh, you know, cast a wide and big net, I used, um, I used uh, uh, um, equity, high equity. Sorry, brain freeze. I used high equity. And so a high equity list is good for two reasons. Number one, the list is relevant for a long time. You don't have to replenish a high equity list every month or two. They should be good for a long time, a year, maybe more, because equity doesn't change that fast, really. So we use high equity lists. And also... If somebody has a code violation and they're on a niche list, it doesn't necessarily mean they have equity, which doesn't mean you can't help them, but it makes it a little trickier. Now you have to use some sort of creative financing, and that's a whole different skill set, and maybe you're not ready for that. So if you just want someone who you can buy their house at a discount, they need to have equity. And so we, we would mail to equity because if you mail to enough of it, right, if you have a big enough budget, you can hit everybody in that, on that equity list if they have a niche list situation, a code violation, a divorce situation, a probate situation, whatever it is, if there's enough equity in the house, they will get my mailer and I will talk to them too. So I kind of, by default, I'm hitting a niche list because high equity also has niche stuff on it. It's just not defined as niche. It's high equity. So that's, if you're not going to dabble two things, figure out your budget and come up with a budget that you can maintain for at least six months and, and execute. And, and you can tweak your marketing here and there, like within that six months, but don't stop it and start it. Stop it and start it. it it's it very much as a momentum thing. So if you're on it, if you're going to do mailings, if you're going to do that, pull your list and mail to it and stay consistent for six months. I've seen so many people stop early and I know they were getting close. They just stopped too early. So that's my opinion. Okay. <clears throat> Next question from Elliot Bennett. I'm okay making mistakes to learn how to flip, but how do you avoid le uh, lethal <laughs> lethal pitfalls when starting flipping? I don't know what I don't know, and I'm hesitant to make a fatal mistake. Well, honestly, Elliot, I'm going to give you two answers. 
I'm going to give you the one that is like, you really should do it. And, and maybe it's not for you. Maybe you're not able to do it. You really need, you need help. If you don't want to make a mistake and you're nervous about making a lethal mistake, you need to have a mentor, a coach, a mastermind. You need to be involved in that. So you can ask questions to people who know what they're talking about, who've been doing it a long time, who have success so that you're not just figuring this out as you go. Okay. Um, that could be me. It could be somebody else. Um, but I suggest that you get help and I'm happy to do it and I'm happy to, to mentor you, but, um, there's a link down in the, if my, somebody behind the scenes here can put the link in the chat here to go to the um, program. Um, but you can click on that and I'll, I'll happy to give you some help. But the other side of it is what do you do to avoid lethal mistakes? Really know your numbers, like really work with a realtor or somebody who has access to the access to the MLS. If you don't and make sure that you understand what that house could be worth and should be worth after renovation, it's called ARV, right? Um, after repair value, ARV. So get with somebody who can give you a, cause that's the first number. All your numbers flow from the ARV. If your ARV is wrong, if you just go to Zillow and say, well, that's what it should be. And that's wrong. Every number you do after that is going to be wrong. So the first number, that keystone number is ARV. Make sure you nail that. And then the next thing you have to nail is what is the cost of repairs for the house that you potentially want. Now, if you're not a contractor and I'm not a contractor, I tell people all the time, I have no idea how to build things or how to repair things. I can't put up drywall well, like it would look like crap. I can't mud. I can't lay tile. I can't hang cabinets. I'm terrible at all that, right? But I know how much it costs and I know how long it should take. And so as a, as a, as a fix and flip investor, you don't have to know how to do the work. You don't have to be a contractor. Trust me, I've proven that hundreds of times. You do not have to know that, but you have to learn cost and timing. And the best way to do that is to walk into houses with contractors and get quotes. So if you have a house that you're thinking about, find a contractor. It can even be a friend or somebody who's a con they must be a contractor. They must know their stuff, but bring them in with you and have them start like quoting it, have them start writing down numbers, pointing things out to you. You need to learn as fast as possible how to estimate renovation, because that is definitely like the biggest thing that you're going to have to get right on your numbers. Okay. So there's a formula. I, I don't have time to do it tonight, but I've done it on this Q and a before there is a formula for running those numbers and making sure. So your numbers are going to keep you safe. If you use hard money, Elliot, if you use hard money to buy these properties to, to fix and flip, the hard money lending company will underwrite your deal. They will look at it. They will run the numbers themselves, independent of anything you tell them, and they'll fund it or not. If they don't fund it, then you might be off on your numbers. Like the, a hard money lending company, for all the things that people could complain about, high interest rates, pain in the butt, they will keep you safe. It's a layer of protection because they're going to protect themselves. They will not loan money to a deal that looks really, really bad. So using a hard money lender is also going to keep you from making lethal mistakes. Like they will just tell you, they're not going to worry about hurting your feelings. Hey, this isn't a good deal. Like you have overpaid. This contract is too high or your renovation budget is way lower than it needs to be. Like they'll, they'll give you straight answers. So using them is good, but really running your numbers, knowing your numbers, knowing how to calculate your numbers when you're looking at a deal and staying very, very disciplined to those and not deviating just because you want the deal, that will help you stay out of trouble. Um, another lethal or um, 
yeah, a fatal mistake. I like you use lethal and fatal. You won't die. None of these will kill you. But uh, another mistake that I made in the past that I, I see people make, a couple of them, when you get a contractor, when you hire a contractor to do the work, the down payment or the money you give them up front should be small. Zero upfront is great until they start actually doing things, or maybe up to like 15% is, is reasonable for them to like start hiring people to do demo and get a, a dump truck or a dumpster out there to put the garbage in and maybe start buying materials. But don't I've heard of people giving their contractors 50% of the total cost of the renovation, like 50% on day one. I've heard of people giving them all of the money up front. That's a fatal lethal mistake. You may not die from doing it, but you'll want to kill yourself after you do it. So um, don't do that. And then make everyone, make your contractors and your subcontractors sign what's called a release of lien. A release of lien is just an acknowledgement from them that you've paid them in full once you have paid them in full. And so they can't put a lien on your property. It happened to me when I did my first deal. I had someone put a, a contractor, put a lien on my property uh, because my general contractor didn't pay the electrician. So I had to pay the electrician twice because I didn't know that, right? So know your numbers, work with a, a mortgage, uh, I'm sorry, hard money lending company. Um, don't overpay your contractors in the beginning, beginning. Don't give them a ton of money up front. You won't see them again. And uh, make sure you get a release of lien. Like there's a, there's a lot, there's probably a list of things I could go over with you and tell you, but those are some of the big ones, some of the highlights that I think you really need to pay attention to. Okay, one more question and then we're gonna, we're gonna call it. Uh, this is, um, this is a, another one from Nick. What are the pros and cons of LTR versus STR? Nick, don't give me acronyms. <laughs> give me the full words. Uh, tell me what LTR and STR are. I might be just drawing a blank here, but I don't use those acronyms uh, every day. So they're not, they're not coming through. Are you there, Nick? Nick, Nick, Nick. Here we go. You're welcome, Michael. Appreciate you, brother. All right, I'm gonna give Nick a second here to give me L, T, R, and S, T, R. Oh, long-term rental, short-term rental, gotcha, okay. Um, I just don't use all acronyms, that's funny. What are the pros and cons? Um, okay, so the pros and cons, of long term, so I've had long term rentals, and I'm going, I'm getting into short term rentals. So it's a good question. Long term rentals are good because they are I, they're much more passive. They're they're much more um, inherently passive. Both can be passive, and both can be pretty active, frankly. But long term rentals are inherently passive. The idea is you get a bunch of single family homes, you rent them out for a year or more at a time, a management company handles the day-to-day -day stuff, collecting rents, making sure that the renters are not destroying the house. And you don't have to theoretically do anything. You just collect rent checks every month. Um, those checks are, tend to be smaller, right? So for every house, it, depending on the market you're in, you know, making between $100 a door and maybe four or $500 a door on the, on the higher end, like that's pretty common. I'm sure there are people who can tell me, oh, no, no, my market, we make $800 or $1,000 a door, maybe. But most people are, are, are averaging between like one and five, somewhere in there, right? So smaller, smaller drips of, of cash flow every month, but they're, rent, they're, you know, they're rented for a year. They're, there's a year lease usually. And so, and they're hands-off and you get a management company, it's super hands-off. Short-term rentals are great 
because the income potential, the cash flow, the revenue from short-term rentals is much, much higher. The downside of short-term rentals are while you can have a company come in and help you run it, most people do it by themselves, especially in the beginning. And it could be a little bit more active until you have processes in place and things, or maybe some people helping you, trying to find uh, cleaning people and making sure they're doing a good job. People get into the house and can't find something. They can't make the, the Wi-Fi work. You know, the TVs aren't functioning right. They're texting you with questions. It can be a little bit more active. Also, there are cities and municipalities that are working round the clock, it seems, to outlaw short-term rentals in their area, in their city, in their market, in their county. And so it's constantly this, um, this concern, this stress that you have to you know, be careful where you get short-term rentals, because if you get it in an area that's actively working to make them illegal, then you're going to have this house that maybe you can't do anything with and you can no longer use it as a short-term rental. I was at an event last weekend, Flip Hacking Live, and I was having this exact conversation because I'm interested in the short-term rental market. And I was talking to a friend of mine who has several of them. And his, his feedback was, when you buy a short-term rental or you buy a house for short-term rental purposes, Always make sure that you have another exit strategy with that property so that if for some reason in that market, in that city, in that county, whatever, they make short-term rentals uh, difficult or impossible to have, or maybe just make them illegal altogether, you can do something else. Maybe make it a long-term rental, maybe flip it. You know, If you get it at, at the right price, you can flip it. So point being, Short-term rentals, be careful that it doesn't, you don't end up with a house that you overpaid because you can pay retail in a lot of markets. You can pay retail for a house if you're going to use it as a short-term rental because the revenue potential makes it make sense. The numbers work if you do it. But if, it, if all of a sudden you can't use that as a short-term rental, you have to have another exit strategy or you just have an overhouse overpriced house on your hands. So be really, really careful. I personally um, sold all my long-term rentals and I'm going to be getting into short-term rentals, but I'll be honest, I am not going to run them myself for long. As a matter of fact, I may partner with somebody who is, is like, okay. And, and has the capacity to, to sort of run the day-to-day -day operations and let me find and fund the deals get them renovated and somebody helps me operate them as a partner. Maybe I'll do that or maybe I'll just hire a company. But um, I, like, I like the fact that instead of needing you know, 50 rentals, maybe you only need 10 short-term rentals or five short-term rentals to give you the same cash flow as 50 long-term rentals. So that's the advantage. You can make much more money much faster with less properties, but it's, it's a, you know, they're coming and going every few days, every two, three, four days a week, maybe at the most they're, you know, people are coming, going out of that house. So you have to get cleaners in there. You have to answer questions. You have to make sure the code has been changed. Like all these things, you have to buy new, new, um, you know, new disposable stuff, toiletries and all this stuff. When you first buy the house, unlike a long-term rental, short-term rental, you have to furnish it completely as if someone's going to live there because they kind of will. Right. So you need silverware and, you know, paper towels and toilet paper and all this stuff, couches and chairs and beds and blankets and pillows and sheets and comforters, like all that stuff has to happen in a short-term rental. None of that happens at a long-term rental. You give someone a house empty, they furnish it. But 
short-term rentals revenue uh, potential is high with less property. So that's a quick rundown of the of the difference. And thank you for, uh, I don't use those acronyms. So uh, I should, because I say long-term rental, short-term rental, it's a lot more to say, but um, okay, guys, uh, thank you for your questions. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you tuning in and asking questions. Uh, love having you guys here. It's a total blast. Makes it so much more fun when there's more interaction from you guys live. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. If I'm here every Wednesday, guys, at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, if you want to check out my program, if you want me to help you directly in your business, go to find and fund blueprint.com. That's find and fund blueprint.com. I will be there for you until next week, guys. Go after it. Go get it. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.